you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Here for the third time, I am ready to come to you. And I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarrelling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practised. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Good morning, City on a Hill. Good to be with you. Uh, my name's Nick. If you haven't had the chance to meet before, I get the joy of being the lead pastor of this church. And today, the joy of, you know, I was going to say it this week, landing the plane on our 2 Corinthians sermon series. 12 whole weeks. 
and we made it. Well done. Let's put our hands together for everyone. You, you, you did it. We got through the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, so I'm looking forward to this. And so if you were tuning into that, it'd be good to have your Bibles open while we do go through it. Uh, before we do, uh, last week, I wasn't up here. Pat did a great job in opening up uh, 2 Corinthians, uh, well, the first half of, of chapter 12. I was downstairs in the wild, wild west of uh, City Kids, uh, and I thought I'd, I'd come and give an update from the Wild West, how, how things were, because uh, I was incredibly impressed with what is going on down there. The kids were eager, uh, putting their hands up, and they knew every question, the answer was Jesus, and they got them all right. Uh, the, 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 the order, the, the orderliness was, was incredible, uh, and so I thought I would come back and report that we should praise God for our City Kids volunteers who uh, sow in their time, invest their time and their energy into uh, raising up the next generation that they might know Jesus, have their Bibles open, uh, be walking through the Scriptures as we are. And so let's put our hands together for them as well. Thank you so much, City Kids volunteers. Over the last 12 months, you might not know if you only kind of come upstairs, but there's been somewhat of a revival downstairs. Uh, We have on any given week 60 to 80% more kids than we had this time last year. Uh, and so that means there's uh, a lot of capacity building that we need to do. And so if you uh, one day maybe potentially perhaps could uh, be a City Kids volunteer, uh, now would be the time. It would be great to have you sign up to that. So please do let us know if that might interest you. It is an important ministry. Uh, I'm going to pray just to join in with Justine's prayer earlier, and then we'll dive into this final couple of chapters. Gracious God, we thank you for your word, that it is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. Would you pierce us today for our good and for your glory? Help us see Jesus as big and as beautiful as he really is, and help make us to be more like him. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Well, speaking of kids, a couple of weeks ago, my day was rudely interrupted uh, as I got a phone call from Axel's primary school wanting me to come and pick him up because Axel was in the sick bay. Now, I got that phone call right when I was about to walk into a meeting that me and the team had been planning for weeks. And so I thought, this better be worth it. You know, anything short of a broken arm, and this will be a disappointment. So I rocked up to the school uh, to pick him up. Uh, and t- to be honest, you know, it, it, he, he looked down. He, he, he was not the energetic self that we, we know Axel to be, face mask on, a uh, l- little bit more pale. Uh, and, and so checked him out of school. Uh, and then, and I've heard this is common, you know, something incredible happened as he was leaving the sick bay. <laughs> there must be just, just these invisible healing properties between the sick bay and the parents' car door, uh, because by the time we got in the car, let alone got home, it was only a few minutes later that he was out the back playing basketball by himself uh, in the backyard. Uh, and that whole episode reminded me of, of the times then, that I got to stay home from school uh, in the 90s. You know, kids these days do not know it, but there was a disincentive to stay home from school back in my day because of the lack of options on TV. Uh, daytime TV in the de- back in the day, there was not a lot going on. Uh, a lot of it uh, was related to, you know, courtroom drama, if, if, if you're in a kid of the 90s. You had Law and Order reruns, uh, you had Judge Judy, uh, and then you had one that was like courtroom adjacent, uh, Jerry Springer. Does anyone remember Jerry Springer? That was the daytime 
uh, best of. Uh, for those who are too young amongst us, Jerry Springer. Uh, you can YouTube a lot of Jerry Springer. In fact, I YouTubed it this week because my mind went back to Jerry Springer. And to sum up what Jerry Springer was about, the very first line I heard uh, when I YouTubed it, Jerry was looking at the camera. He said, hey, what would you do if the person who was trying to steal your husband was your own niece? And that was, that was that episode. And so the, the aggrieved wife was there, uh, and she was detailing to the crowd what was going on, and the, the niece was out the back listening with the headphones on, and then they released the niece uh, out to the front, and, and it's on for young and old. Security come out, uh, and they rushed the stage. And so that was the standard of daytime TV uh, in the 90s. Uh, there's, there's a slight connection here. Uh, the book of 2 Corinthians has somewhat, for the last 12 weeks, we've been kind of in the courtroom because the Corinth, the Christians in Corinth have been, have been throwing, lobbying accusations at Paul. And so the last 12 chapters, we've seen Paul have to defend himself, defend his integrity, defend his ministry, defend uh, his heart and theology for why he does and lives and leads the way he does. And the church in Corinth, if you've read the first letter to Corinth, resembles somewhat of the set of Jerry Springer, and yet Paul has been uh, replying to them in a dignified, intentional, laying out, bearing himself vulnerably before them to in defence. And now we come to the final couple of chapters, and there is a, there is a reversal of those positions, because uh, in the Greco-Roman world, in the, in the uh, first century ancient Jewish world, there was, a, there was a quirk in their legal process that we perhaps wouldn't be familiar with some 2,000 years later, and that is that, that these kind of prosecutions in the legal world were, were handled privately. We kind of leave it up to the cops, we leave it up to, to, to the government to prosecute. Well, it was handled privately, and that means that if someone was kind of giving their defence defending themselves. And then it turned out that, well, actually, they had not much to answer for. They could, right there and then, flip the script, and the defendant would become the prosecutor. And those who had been lobbying the accusations now have to give a defense for themselves about how they got there. And that's exactly what Paul's going to do today. He is going to flip the script on Corinth, because he has been criticized, and he's worn his heart on his sleeve in defending those criticisms for 12 chapters. And here, in the final, the 12th and 13th chapter... He calls the Corinthians to examine themselves. So he's going he's to throw it back on to them to examine themselves. And just like them, we've heard throughout the book what it looks like to be a people shaped by the good news of Jesus. What difference the gospel should make in our lives as people who claim to follow Jesus. And Paul's going to lob that at us and call us to examine ourselves. Is Jesus making a difference in our life? And so we're going to walk through uh, this final uh, couple of chapters from the second half of, of chapter 12 into 13. And to structure our time together, I think we see from this text that there, there are three big things that also, I guess, summarize a little bit about what 2 Corinthians has been about. And so we're going to walk through the text and draw them out. And the first we'll see is that 2 Corinthians tells us that God is forming a family. God is forming a family. We see this at the outset of our, our reading today. In, in chapter 12, verse 14, Paul's about to come and visit them again. And so he says this, Here for the third time, I am ready to come to you. And I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. 
I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? And so Paul starts by positioning himself as he kind of, or, or revealing how he sees himself as some kind of spiritual father, a spiritual parent to this church here in Corinth. Now, parents give of themselves to children. They, they, they leave important meetings to go pick them up from the sick bay. They give of their time, their energy, and Paul here particularly speaks to the money. Now, there's parents who, who build up an inheritance and pass it down to their children, not the children to parents. And the background there of bringing up the money is that the Corinthians were particularly ticked off, that when Paul was with them, Paul didn't ask to take a salary from them to support himself while he was there in Corinth. Instead, he, he made tents. He, he worked for himself so that he could not have to put that burden on them. But they lived in an honor shame culture where they're like, no, no, we want you to expect that of us so that other people hear that we are the ones who support you. So they were particularly offended by that. And they saw it as some kind of conspiracy theory that Paul had against the Corinthians there in Corinth to, to kind of show off that, that these guys kind of weren't up to stand it. But Paul says, I haven't wanted to take from you because I'm the dad. I'm the, I'm the parent here. And so I'm happy to spend and be spent for the sake of your souls, for the sake of your upbuilding, because Paul loves this church. Now, it's amazing how different Paul's activity is, or Paul's behavior is, than, than what we probably would advise Paul to do in this situation. Because if we were advising Paul in this situation, we'd say, Paul, brother, I know you love these people, but this is a toxic congregation here in Corinth. They are lying about you. They are manipulating you. They are gaslighting you. You need to distance yourself. Put some boundaries in, Paul. You need to stop giving, spending yourself for these people who are just using you. You need to move on and leave. And yet Paul, he won't hear it. Now, this has been a repeated theme. Paul loves the church. He gives himself to the church. He tells us a couple of times in this reading, all he does is for their upbuilding, to support them, to encourage them. That's because Paul knows that the good news of Jesus, it creates thick relational glue amongst all the people who follow Jesus. Paul's not going anywhere because he sees himself as leading this as the family of God together. Just as if we have a thicker relational glue amongst families, so too that exists in the family of God. And that's why it can be so painful when we ourselves as Christians don't experience that in the local church. Because sometimes churches can feel more like factories than families. You get used, spit out, mistreated. The testimony of many people is that they've actually left the church because the felt reality of church life has kind of led to cognitive dissonance with the doctrinal reality of God's love and grace for us. Now, Paul could have responded that way. Paul could have felt that way because everyone was pointing the finger at him. Everyone was accusing him. And just like there in modern day churches, there are accusations that get flown around, conspiracies, people hunting for sin and then shooting at others with their own sin. And yet for Paul... He knew that Christ died for the church. And so therefore, Paul was going to spend himself for that for which Christ died. He had a deep love and affection for the church. 
Now, even while he spent the last 11 chapters or so trying to correct and admonish these people, he's done so because he wants them to grow up in Jesus. He wants to see them grow into all that Christ can have them be. And so he says in in verse 19, Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? It's in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. And so as a spiritual dad, he sees these people as his beloved. See, when the gospel hits us, when we recognize that we are undeserving sinners and that God has intervened, disrupted our trajectory by sending his own son for us, we become a new creation with a new heart. And with a new heart, our loves start to change. Suddenly we have new priorities, new affections. We care for things in different ways than we would have otherwise. And the gospel does that because the gospel makes us a family. God is making a family in the world right now. We here at our church are one local expression of that family. And so like Paul, we should start to feel a burden toward one another. Kind of like a a, a holy, helpful pressure to want to see one another grow up in Jesus. Now, I know that today, in, in, in our day, uh, we have unique challenges to that because we perhaps live in the most individualistic age than, than has ever been before in the world. I was reading an article just last week uh, in The Age or online on The Age website uh, that, that was talking about the, the experience that perhaps we probably all share in uh, when we go on holiday. Maybe, maybe you're like me, you know, you, you take a few days off. Uh, a few nights away, you get out of work mode, you, you de-stress, you're in a different geographic location, maybe somewhere down on the peninsula, down by uh, the beach, you catch some sun. And just as you are putting your feet up on the, air, you know, the couch of the Airbnb that you have rented, you, you, you ask yourself a question. Gee, I wonder what this, this place is worth. And so then you, you, then you pull out realestate.com.au and you, you check out, well, what is, what is the local kind of real estate uh, kind of scene here? And then you, you kind of play it back. You notice that on your way down, you know, all the, all the necessary amenities in life are, are so local, so, so nearby. You know, the beach is right there. The, the Wi-Fi works so well here in the, the Airbnb. You feel like you, you, you kind of de-stress. You're out of that pressure, the bubble of your normal, busy, relentless life. You notice that on your way down, you notice there was a, there was a like, like as you passed a farm, it said like, you know, farmhand required. And you start to think, you know, we could, we could make a life here. We could be happy here. And so then, then, you know, later that night, you bring it up with your spouse. You know, what do you, what do you reckon? You know, we could, we could be happy. You start, start dreaming about it. You know, I could work on the farm. You could churn the butter. You could, you could work from home, maybe. And so a few days away, relaxing, a getaway, it quickly becomes an interrogation of all of your life choices up until that point. And you start to think about making a bigger shift. And we're ready to upend it all. Friends like me, we're very prone to dream when you're getting away from it all. And yet, notice the dreams. The dreams are always about getting away from everyone else, getting away from everything else, denying everything else so that you can finally be in this state of bliss and freedom. Now, of course, hopefully, and often it's over that dinner with the spouse, you come back down to earth because you realize all the good responsibilities that you have that you don't want to leave from your real life. 
But those responsibilities never seem to be something that you take with you into your dreams of your hoped-for future. Responsibilities never seem to be something that we include in our, in, our, in our kind of Emerald City vision of the good life. Now that's, that's for the sober moments. That's for the serious moments. And so as a culture now, we don't often talk about responsibility because we're individuals. We're isolated. We, we, we should be free to be ourselves. We only talk about freedom. Yesterday, Jules and I took the kids to, to Disney on Ice in, in Rod Laver Arena. And it's an incredible experience. You know, there were, there were about 5,000 four-year-old girls singing with the great philosopher of our age, Queen Elsa. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. And the Bible talks a lot about freedom as well. You might know them. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Who the sun sets free is free indeed. As we behold the glory of the Lord, in that little passage it says, the Spirit of the Lord, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But it tells us all about freedom. Not to kind of align with the spirit of our age, as if it's freedom from our responsibilities. And when the Bible talks about freedom, it's telling us that, hey, you've now been set free to be the person that you're called to be. You've been set free to do the things that you've been called to do. You've been set free to fulfill the responsibilities that have been put upon you as a gift. And so Jesus gives us more responsibilities rather than freeing us from responsibilities. And one of the central responsibilities is that we enter into the family of God. That when we trust in Jesus, we're no longer alone. No longer isolated. Yes, we're united with him, but we're united with everyone in him as a family. And so our dreams of our future life should center around those responsibilities. What will contribute to God's kingdom? Who we're going to invest in that we might see them be built up in Jesus? How we might be able to raise up the, the next generation? How we're going to help fuel, as Jesus called us to, more laborers? to send them into the harvest? Which local church are we going to give our lives to, commit to, so that we might see those people there built up and flourish? Now, those aren't 2023-type dreams, but they are two Corinthian-type dreams. That is what God wants us dreaming about. So if our dreams are all about having a country estate, if our dreams are about moving down to the coast and, and, and joining a golf club, I might be giving myself away there. And if our dreams are all about us moving out and up and away to this, this blissful state of further isolation, then your dreams are no different than the world's dreams. God wants your vision of the good life to involve these good, holy responsibilities that he puts on you as someone who is in Christ, giving ourselves for the sake of others, building up the body of Christ, seeing God break in and break through in the lives of those around us. Those are gospel-driven dreams. And that's what we've seen in 2 Corinthians, that Paul's life here embodies that kind of commitment, that kind of responsibility, particularly as it's played out in this awkward and sometimes very frayed relationship with the church in Corinth. Now, central to that conviction that God creates a family is something even wider than that. And Paul continues to talk about that. And he tells us that, that God wants our whole life. 
Perhaps more than telling us, he he shows us that God wants our whole life. Because he says, if we move down to to chapter 13, verse 1, it starts out this way. He says again, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you but he's powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. And so Paul's readying himself again to return for the third time uh, to Corinth. And there he's going to have to come face to face with people who have been slandering him, people who have been questioning and kind of throwing up his reputation around the traps there in Corinth. That if they're serious about it, they better kind of come forward and put these charges before him. He's going to deal with them. But Paul's response shows us something that is so key to his life, and therefore we can learn from, should be so key to ours. Because Paul could respond to that, and we'd probably vouch for him doing this, that he would come to Corinth with witnesses to his integrity. He's going to come and bring a posse who can vouch for him, that actually he's, he's a guy who's worthy and upstanding. Paul perhaps could even come to there in Corinth, knowing a lot of these people and probably knowing their baggage and their background. He could come with his charges of his own about these particular people. Maybe Paul could, could rally the elites or even some of the Roman soldiers that he's seen converted in his ministry and kind of come to Corinth and strong arm them, intimidate them. Maybe Paul could not even could just move on and not even come to Corinth again. But where does Paul's mind go first. It doesn't go to any of those strategies. It doesn't go to any of those responses. No, Paul's mind says, what was Jesus like? How did Jesus respond in this situation? How did Jesus live? Paul sees that the pattern of his life needs to pivot around the pattern of the life and death of Jesus in his own life. So Paul loves the church because that's just one part of how his whole life now has been shaped around Jesus. God wants our whole life given to Jesus. God wants our whole life. We read this elsewhere in Paul. Paul says in Philippians, to live is Christ. That's the summary of his life. He says in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And here he says, verse 4, For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. We also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. If Paul's weak, he's weak because Jesus is weak. If Paul needs to be strong, he's going to gather and draw that strength from the strength of Jesus. Whether it's in good times or in bad, whether it's weakness or strength, in any direction, his life is in Jesus. This has been a massive theme of the whole book. This is, this is sum up 2 Corinthians. I know the book has been confusing. 2 Corinthians is quite a confusing book because it, we should expect that. When you, when you pick up a letter that was written 2,000 years ago, you have to work out what's going on from the circumstances that are talked about in the letter. It's kind of like doing one of those things as a kid to connect the dots drawings, but you kind of have to work out where the dots are. But what's clear is that this letter highlights that that what it means to be a Christian, 
is to have all of our life for all of Jesus. We could go through the book, and I'll I'll summarize it now, to show us how Paul has taught us that. In chapter 1, you might remember that we started by Paul talking about his own affliction, his own suffering, and he even said that his suffering was a sharing in the suffering of Jesus. And that when he was not just suffering but comforted, his comfort came from the fact that Jesus himself was comforting. And then he talked about his, his travel plans and how they were a bit different than what he would first proposed to Corinth. And he actually said that his travel plans changed. And even though that made it seem like he, he, he said one thing and did another, that actually, no, his integrity, his faithfulness was assured because he's in Jesus. That even those mundane matters about changing the booking with Jetstar, it's because Jesus is with him. The Corinth, Corinth can be assured that he does what he says he'll do. In chapter 2, Paul talked about forgiving people, particularly this one guy who, who stood up, it's reported, in front of the church and, and kind of slandered Paul before them, disrespected him. Paul says that he forgave him because he sees himself as living his whole life in the presence of Jesus. In chapter 3, he said that his ministry was because of Jesus, that actually everyone this side of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the only reason that we know God is because we can see Jesus and through him, encounter the glory of God. In chapter 4, he said that he wasn't interested in proclaiming himself, but Jesus Christ as Lord. So every word he said, his speech was compelled by Jesus. That it's only Jesus who can shine the light of the glory of God into our hearts. And therefore, Jesus gets all the credit for anyone who knows God. He says that we have that reality, the title of our series, this treasure in jars of clay. In other words, to say that The gospel is in us and anything that happens to our bodies, our vulnerable, finite bodies, we're carried by the sufficiency of Jesus, by the strength of Jesus. He is the one who sustains us. In chapter 5, we were told that because we've come to Jesus and become a new creation, we're now commissioned to be ambassadors on a mission to let everybody else know that today is the day of salvation. In chapter 6, Paul said, come out from among them. You know, be, be a, a Christian there in Corinth who's distinct from the world so that people see that Jesus makes a difference. In chapter 7, he talked about how, how much he loves these people, how his joy is wrapped up in the lives of these Corinthian people because he knows that Christ died for them. Christ died for the church. In chapter 8 and 9, he, he started talking about their finances and he said, hey, you need to be generous. Because why? Because Christ, though he was rich, became poor. For your sake. And so that even the work of Jesus affects the hip pocket. It affects how we think about our bank accounts and our money, that we should be generous. In chapter 10, Paul entreated them by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ, that he started to write like Jesus, that they might take every one of their thoughts captive for the sake of Christ, instead of the false teachers. In chapter 11, he started boasting about his sufferings, to show them that his life was weak like Jesus. In chapter 12, he continued boasting about his sufferings, even the sufferings he's in even right now, and said, Jesus is the one who is my sufficiency. His grace is for me. And now he says in chapter 13 that all the words that he speaks and all the words that he writes, they come from Jesus. It's Christ speaking through him this whole time. And so you can see that every single area of our lives, every single area of Paul's life, he relates it 
to the fact that Jesus has come in and disrupted him. Jesus has given him a new heart. Jesus has made him a new creation. And therefore, it affects everything. Not just the Sunday morning, not just that, that spirituality compartment of someone's life. No, it affects your whole life. And so, yes, we weren't, we weren't there in this situation in Corinth, but we are there when it comes to experience the, in the incredible reality that Paul is talking about here, that you can have all of your life shaped by Jesus, that Jesus has come and done enough to shape all of your life. Your whole life is about Jesus. If you are a Christian, then your whole life is wholly lived in Jesus. The question isn't whether Jesus has this area of your life, but to what degree have you surrendered it to him? To what degree do you bring it to him in prayer? To what degree do you notice Jesus' effect upon that area of your life? And that's key because Paul's not so much for these 13 chapters been telling the people there in Corinth to change. You know, the central message of 2 Corinthians, the central message of the Bible, the central message of Christianity is not you need to change. More so, he's telling them to just notice the work of Jesus, to observe what Jesus has done for them. Notice that in the good moments of your life, well, that should roll up into gratitude to Jesus. Notice that in the hard moments of your life, well, Jesus is there even in that suffering and affliction. Notice that in the mundane moments of your life, well, that can actually point to the faithfulness of Jesus, that he's there even in that. Notice that in the fast-paced and exciting moments, well, that can point to the sufficiency of Jesus, that he will get you through. In the suffering that you experience, as a Christian, you experience it with Jesus. The responsibilities that you have, as a Christian, they are for Jesus. The dreams of your future, as a Christian, should include Jesus. The weak moments bring us closer to Jesus. The strong moments, we draw power from Jesus. All of life is all of Christ's. And so when we reflect on ourselves, what part of our lives haven't we yet given up to him? And this is exactly where Paul goes next. Paul, God through Paul, wants us to examine ourselves. And this is where we land the plane officially on 2 Corinthians, because he says, in verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. And so the whole book now is leading to this moment where Paul flips it and puts it back on them, where Paul flips it and puts it back on us. Well, let's examine ourselves. This whole time, the Corinthians have been asking the question, hey, is Jesus really with this guy? And now Paul gets asked to ask the question, is Jesus really with us? Are you aware of Jesus in your life? Are you living with Jesus at the center of your life so that his good news, his grace, his gospel affects all of your life? You know, even now, be reflective as I'm talking to you in this moment. Test yourselves. Is all of my life surrendered to Jesus? Is there an area where I hope my mind doesn't go this morning because then that will ping off the alarm bells that it hasn't been surrendered to Jesus? Is my dream of the, the good life, the life I'd love to have, is it shaped 
by the priorities and the affections of Jesus? Does the state of my life, my decision-making, my spending, my speech, my private moments, my loves, does it suggest that I have a heart for Jesus? But as you examine yourself, notice the emphasis of Paul. Because just after he asks us or, or tells us to examine ourselves, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith, test yourselves. Then he says this. He says, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? See, Paul's not asking them to, to go through their life and, and accrue all the evidence that they're a Christian. You know, accrue all the good things that, that, you, that you do so that you can kind of have it there in your mind And it's there that you can find your assurance. No, Paul wants to assure them. Hey, you should notice that Christ is in you. You should notice that that Jesus Christ is in you. You need to see this. You need to notice this. That's important because the, the assurance of our faith doesn't come from the size or the strength of our faith, but the object of our faith. We can have faith as small as a mustard seed, But if that faith is in a saviour as strong as Jesus, we have all the faith we need. We've learned in this book that that true faith isn't flashy. It's not charismatic and impressive. True faith is simply centering your life around Jesus. If you're here and you're not a Christian or you're someone who's weighing up what we're all doing here, what we're, what, we're, what we're saying here, what the Bible says. You know, this part of the Bible, as with the whole Bible, it tells us what, what Christianity is all about. It's not about politics. It's not about good works. It's not about raising a steady, stable, middle-class family in the suburbs. Christianity is about trusting who Jesus has been for you. 2,000 years ago, God took on flesh and entered into the world so that he might live a perfect life for you because he knew that you hadn't. He knew that all of us have failed and turned against him and sinned. And that he would then go and die a sacrificial death for us in our place as our substitute, paying for that failure. And then he rose in victory, showing that he had indeed paid that penalty and yet he'd beaten it. He'd beaten our sin and death. And so if we're here and we we focus on our own performance, our moral behavior, how how, how faithful we are to to God, then we're just going to be stuck in our own discouragement and doubt. Our our inner life will be like the set of Jerry Springer, constant accusations, constant conflict within us, constant fight. Rather, if we focus on His performance for us, we'll find such encouragement, such peace, that we'll go looking for areas of our life that aren't yet surrendered to him and want to give them to him. That's the thing. Jesus loves you so much that he doesn't want any part of your life not surrendered to him. You know, so often, it's not our failure that gets in the way of giving our life to Jesus, but our success. Because our sin is easy to deal with. God's done it. He's he's died in our place for us. But what gets in the way is us thinking that we're good enough. What gets in the way is us thinking that that we've been successful enough. We're okay on our own. We've got it covered. 
And that's exactly where Paul's opponents here in Corinth were, the super apostles. They, they thought, no, 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 we're, we're good. Look at all the things that we're good. People are commending us. We're flashy. We speak well. And those who had followed him, the Corinthians who had followed him, would, they're the ones who are failing the test. And so we need to see our need. Our need is great because we are far worse than we've thought. But our Savior is greater because Jesus loves us more than we could imagine. And so this examination needs, us, needs to lead us to come to Jesus. There's a story in the Gospels that Jesus tells to describe who is right with him, who is right with God. He tells of a tax collector and a Pharisee entering into the temple. The temple, the place where you come to encounter God. And the Pharisee, a religious elite, walks in and says, God, I thank you for all the good I'm doing. I thank you that I'm tithing everything that I have. I thank you that I've given all of my life to you by speaking well and sacrificing enough. The tax collector walks in, a social trader of the day, at the bottom of the social totem pole. Can only hang in the shadows, can only hang in the back lest he be seen and scaled out. And says, God, have mercy on me. A sinner. See, what got in the way is that the tax collector was bringing his own righteousness. And yet the tax, sorry, the Pharisee was bringing his own righteousness, whereas the tax collector knew that he had none. And the tax collector was purely relying on the work of Jesus for him, on the work of God for him. Jesus' life was given for your life. And so 2 Corinthians comes along to tell us to make your life all about him. We're going to do that now by sharing in communion together. And communion reminds us that even though we come to God as sinners, even though our performance might be a mess, we come to God trusting not in our own righteousness, but trusting in the body and the blood of Jesus given for us. He took our place in death so that we could be made right with him. His work and not our own. And as we do, we've been asked here by Paul to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. And so how do we, how do we summarize? What does, it, what does it mean to be in the faith? What is the faith? Well, Christians have been doing this for a couple of thousand years by reciting together the Apostles' Creeds. We're going to do that together uh, as a church family. The Apostles' Creed is a great summary written just after the Bible to summarize what the Bible says about who God is and what he has done for us. And so we're going to uh, recite it, and it's, it's helpful to do this as we think about our own approaching the Lord's Supper, or approaching communion. Communion is a family meal. And so if you are trusting in Jesus, you can come to the table. And so how do we know that we're believing the right things? Well, it's the Apostles' Creed that, that centers us, that, that brings us together around it. So I'm going to ask you to recite it with me as we reflect on what we think about it. The words should be on the screen. Let's do it together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. 
from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So if you believe that, come and join us in partaking this meal together as a family. If you're here and you're still exploring Jesus, not yet a Christian, thanks so much for being here. And I just invite you to, to consider my words. You know, one day you are going to stand before your maker. What are you going to bring to him? Are you going to bring to him? I've done all right. I've been okay. I've built a good family. I've built a good business. Or are we going to bring to him the work of Jesus for us on our behalf? Jesus is the one who has done what we have failed to do. And Jesus offers us the gift of being made right with our maker, being made right with the God who sent him, who made us, who loves us by trusting in his work and not our own. Let me pray as we close the sermon and then I'll introduce communion for us. Heavenly Father, uh, we come before you this morning with a clear mind, and a sober heart as we examine ourselves as you call us to here in this text. Lord, our sin has separated us from you, from union with who you are, from embracing what you've done for us. So often, Lord, we keep parts of our life from you as our own or as not something you're interested in or something we need to handle on ourselves. But Lord, we thank you for your consistent love for us, the sufficiency of your grace for all of our life. So we, are, we repent, Lord, and we are sorry for our sins. We pray that you would help us see how we can make all of our life all about Jesus. We praise you for Christ, who gave up all of his life for the church that you've given us this church, that you've given us Christian community to empower us, to encourage us, and to shape us after your likeness. May we receive your church as the needed and necessary gift to us in our walk with you today. Most of all, Lord, we thank you for the gift of Jesus, his perfect life, his sacrificial death. We thank you for his resurrection, that he defeated Satan's sin and death. You defeated our greatest enemies. And you now welcome us into your family. And so, Lord, we now don't come presuming to come to you trusting in our own righteousness, but rather in your great mercy. We thank you for these gifts that we're about to partake, this bread, this juice. We pray that we who eat and drink of them in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit in an obedience to our Savior Christ might be partakers by faith of his body and his blood. And so renew us by your Holy Spirit. Unite us in the body of your Son and bring us into the joy of your eternal kingdom. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.